0: Hello and welcome back to the Running Anthropologist podcast. We are really happy to have you along for the journey today because we're kicking off a three-episode series on social justice, faith, and running. So basically we're hoping to see how the inward journey affects the outward journey of runners. And if you have anyone who you know has impacted the world around them through their faith, through their belief in social justice, through their spiritual life and their running, please send us a message on Facebook or on our website. We look forward to hearing from you. Without further ado, let's get started. We couldn't think of anyone better to kick off this series of episodes than someone working with students and teaching them about helping others in immigration law and who can also explain to us from firsthand experience what the situation is like on both borders in the US. So thank you again for joining us and let's get started. And welcome to the podcast Alex Vernon who's uh joining us from uh from Canada right over the border from uh from uh Michigan in the US and he is a UD University of Detroit Mercy uh law professor and runs the immigration law clinic there as well as has done so in many other places including uh Florida. Uh, right down the road from where from where we are, and he has lots of great stories and lots to tell us about uh uh being on both borders and and what things are like now so thanks thanks so much for your time alex
1: Oh, you're welcome good to talk to you
0: well we we go back a ways and i I knew that I really wanted to have you on the podcast to talk about to to talk in the place of us uh you know fun runners who do it for exercise and just to explore their community, but also Kind of the things you see um, in your running and and in your daily work. Um, I know a lot of people are interested in in this topic, so uh, maybe you could start us off just by telling how how you got into working in immigration or working with uh, immigrants, working in law, so to speak.
1: Sure, you know, and and I think there is a time with my running days. Uh, I tell you, I, I uh, I've always wanted to work with people from other countries and other cultures. Part of that is probably being an immigrant myself. I was born in Jamaica and my parents brought me to Canada at a very young age. And I grew up in Toronto, which is a very multicultural area. Uh, I've always enjoyed uh, eating different foods from different cultures, enjoying music, stories, folklore uh actually i kind of tell people a lot of the reason why I, I keep trying to get back into serious running now is so that i can eat whatever i want <laughs> but um you know back in high school i ran for a very strong cross-country program at st michael's college school in toronto and we won the provincial championships a number of years in a row wow uh, and actually one year we got to represent canada at the uh, isf World Cross-Country Championships in Fontainebleau, France.
0: That's amazing. uh, Wow.
1: It was an amazing experience, uh, and it was kind of my first experience, you know, being in another country, uh, interacting with, you know, kids our age from uh, mostly Western Europe and North Africa, uh, and realizing that, you know, the little bit of French that I had learned in school actually took on. Like, I could actually communicate with uh, some of these other kids from other countries, and I actually... uh, made some life-along relationships with some runners from Luxembourg uh, and from Israel, of all places. I uh, just had a one of the Israeli runners get back in touch with me on Facebook, uh, and he was actually an uh, uh, Ethiopian uh, Jewish uh, immigrant to Israel. Wow. Um, and uh, so that was really my first uh, international experience uh, connected with running, and since then I've just had that bug that uh, I've always wanted to work with people from other cultures, and that sort of led me to um, working with individuals uh, in another nonprofit setting and starting to realize that some folks, on, on top of just, you know, having the usual everyday problems of getting a job and feeding a family, also have to worry about whether or not they can even stay where they want to stay, and and, and it kind of got into my head that, hey, you know, that's, that's a career I think I could get into. I think I'd like to go to law school and and become an immigration attorney and help people keep their families together.
0: Wow, what a great um, so that's, story! That's how yeah, I got into it. I, you know, very few people can boast uh, that type of high school cross country experience. I mean, what a what an opportunity! And as as you said, just the the doors and the the horizons that it opened up for you uh, conceptually and what you thought about people as foreigners, quote unquote. Uh, that's that's really Absolutely. neat. Um, how, um, how does that um, kind of, you know, the work that you do now, I know that you train, similarly, uh, young people to, to know about immigration law and to have that as part of their training as they go through law school?
1: Right, right. So I have uh, law students working under my supervision. Uh, some of them come with absolutely no background in immigration law. Some of them, you know, may or may not have an interest in doing immigration law, but they're required to take a clinic where they work with live clients and and work with live legal issues. Hmm. Uh, On the other hand, I have students that, uh, a lot of whom are either from immigrant families or they've immigrated themselves. Some of them are refugees who have fled life-threatening situations. Some of them have memories of of fleeing these life-threatening situations. I've had students come from places like Iraq and Syria. Um mm. I've had students who were migrant workers. Uh some of you know, some of them have been unaccompanied minors uh and have ended up uh, you know, uh getting their, their themselves uh regularized and, and, and becoming lawyers and going on to help people with, with the same sort of issues. So yeah. it's been really fascinating, uh, you know, working with these students uh and seeing what, what experience they can bring to the table, but also opening their eyes to the broader realities facing migrants, both in the United States and and because of our unique situation being so close to to Canada, I get to sort of uh, bring in some of the Canadian migration issues uh, as well.
0: Hmm. Yeah, very comparative. That that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about, um, actually, Alex, is uh, living there on the, I know, on the Canadian side of the border, but commuting every day to the American side. What... um, what sort of things, uh, let's start with that border. Um, I know you run along there every day, you play with your kids, you see um, kind of everything, the comings and the goings uh, uh, every day or weekly at least. Uh, w- what are your impressions of kind of how it's changed and, and what it's uh, what it's like there between Windsor and Detroit?
1: Sure, and, and I guess for people that aren't from here or haven't really taken a good look at a map, sometimes it's startling to people to realize how close uh, the two countries are. We've got a, you know, it's a it's a good sized river separating us. But, um, you know, I, I go to the end of my street and look out across the river, and I see the Belle Isle uh, U.S. Coast Guard Station. I can hear them playing uh, the bugle at the end of the day and and uh, taking the the flag down. Huh. Uh, we can hear the race cars at the moment uh, at the Detroit Grand Prix. Wow. Um, <laughs> so it's really quite close, and it, it takes me you know, uh, 10, 12 minutes from my house in Windsor to cross through the International Tunnel uh, and over into Detroit and I'm at work. Uh, and there are lots of people that make this trip on a daily basis for work, uh, for pleasure. Um, Windsor folks uh, go over and cheer on the Detroit Tigers and the Detroit Red Wings. Uh, some of them go on and cheer on the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Toronto Blue Jays as well. <laughs> but it's, it's, a, it's a, a living breathing border region, Uh, and you'll also find that many uh, people have ties on both sides of the borders. There's a lot of people on the American side that have Canadian roots, uh, and vice versa, and a lot of people who may or may not realize that they are citizens of the other country. Um, uh, So it's it's a fascinating place to live, Um, and it's it's been a fascinating place, uh, a fascinating vantage point from which to... Kind of contemplate some of the uh, the challenges facing migrant uh, migrants, migrants uh, you know, both in the United States
0: and Canada. Oh, uh, interesting! You know, I just caught a little bit of that. You said that because um, some people, through their ancestry, may be Canadian and they may not know it. They just have to kind of fill out the paperwork, so to speak.
1: Yeah, and vice versa. Like, uh, you know, a lot of people come and tell me, "Oh, I want to get my dual citizenship," and. And I ask them, well, you know, what, you know, what, what do you mean? And it turns out maybe their dad is a U.S. citizen, but they're living in Canada, and and so sometimes I'm able to kind of walk them through the process of just applying for the passport that they already qualify for.
2: Huh. Uh,
1: and for some of them, it's realizing that oh, you know, I've actually got tax filing obligations in the United States that I haven't <laughs> thought about. <laughs> so um, yeah, so a lot, you know, a lot of people have a connection on, on both sides of the border, or, or whether it be. Uh, you know, U.S. Uh, citizens that might have a, a cottage property on on uh, Lake Erie on the Canadian side, or vice versa. A lot of a lot of border crossing going on.
0: Neat. I, I know that's one of the. I think it's the only international marathon uh, that we have in the U.S. where they go to Detroit and go through the the tunnel or the bridge, and then come back over. You know, they they get to see both Detroit and Windsor. Uh,
1: Absolutely, and it's it's. Uh, it's a fantastic event. I've never run it myself, but I've certainly gone to uh, spectate and cheer on folks that have been in it. Uh, and yes, indeed, they cross over the bridge, uh, run along the Windsor, Windsor Riverside, and then come back to the United States to the tunnel. At least that's the last route that I was aware of. I think they may have done it uh, other ways in, in years past. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, actually. Uh huh. Sorry. Uh, no a classmate of mine one of my old classmates from uh... st mike's he actually won the uh, half marathon uh... No of some years back i think it was back in two thousand eight
0: <laughs> oh, that's great knowing knowing some of the local uh... the hot, hot str hot rods there um, Right. <laughs> i um, so shifting gears you know as long as you're there kind of mentally i know that you recently you know the episode is called running the border but uh mostly walking and exploring kind of along the southern border um, you did a recent trip um to the southern border and um for a specific purpose can you tell us about that
1: Absolutely so uh Detroit Mercy uh is a is a, a law school that uh is uh, run by both the Jesuits uh, and the Sisters of Mercy and one of the uh benefits of being at a school like that is the connections we have with with sort of sister and brother schools. Um, And the Jesuits, of course, were founded by St. Ignatius of Loyola. They have an Ignatian migration network that uh, put out word that they were going to be organizing what they called an Encuentro, so an encounter, uh, in El Paso, Texas. Uh, And there's actually a Casa Encuentro, uh, or a House of Encounter that uh, is staffed by individuals, that um, uh, their goal is to uh, invite people to, to to experience full migrant experience. So we came down there as folks from different Jesuit institutions, uh, universities, uh, colleges, schools, parishes, um, and we had an opportunity to think and reflect on migration. We had an opportunity to volunteer at a shelter that is welcoming migrants uh, that have just crossed the border from Mexico, hmm. we had an opportunity to visit a detention center, and we actually um, uh, the the priests uh, celebrated a Catholic mass, and we were able to assist at the mass with distributing communion and otherwise uh, uh, being present with people. Um, so it was really a, a wide-ranging experience. We went, to, you know, uh, to to the border to just see what it's like, to, to see what the border fence is like. Um, I had the opportunity to cross over to uh, Ciudad Juarez and uh, see the border from the Mexican side. Hmm. Um, and it was quite a, an eye-opening experience. You really have to, to to be there to understand that it's not always the way it is portrayed in the media. <laughs> um, and that it, in many ways, it, it, it reminded me very much of life in uh, the Detroit-Windsor corridor, where it's, it's a, a living, breathing border that people cross uh, on a daily basis for work, for school, for recreation, um, uh, going both ways. Um, and yes, there are people who are, are crossing, uh, you know, because they're uh, fleeing danger in their home country or they're fleeing desperate poverty. Uh, but that's sort of interwoven into the the greater picture of migration that uh, also encompasses the day to day flows uh, between Ciudad Juarez and, and El Paso.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. I, so many, many more people are crossing legally. Um, when when you look at the physicality of the border w- from both sides, what is it? You know, if we've never been there or seen pictures, maybe you could show a few pictures with us with our. Listeners, what what does it look like as you walk Absolutely. or you jog along it? If you're if you're actually there in sure. Ciudad Juarez, yeah.
1: Well, I have to say it's breathtakingly beautiful territory. It's it's, it's a desert uh, climate, uh, and uh, there are beautiful mountains there. Uh, and of course, the name El Paso is is short for El Paso del Norte, ah. you know, the, the north the north passage. So it's. Um, a passageway through the mountains that has been a, a um, as was explained to me by some uh, people who are very passionate about the area, it's been a a, a, a passage uh, through the mountains that's been used by the indigenous people, uh, by the Spanish settlers, by you know the the American settlers. It's always been a place of passage. Um, the, um, the the Rio Grande it forms part of the, vo- the border between uh, Mexico and the United States uh, at that point. And uh, in contrast to the mighty Detroit River, uh, you know, at that point, it very much looks like uh, what we would consider to be maybe a creek hmm. up in in our part of, of, of the country. Um, uh, you know, so sometimes the water level fluctuates and there's a lot of the riverbed that is exposed. Uh, I saw Mexican children playing in the, in the river. Uh, they could have easily waded across. Hmm. Um, and it's interesting to note that um, the border fence uh, is not right up against the river. It, it's quite a, bit a ways in on, on the American side. So, um, you know, by the time uh, somebody who, who, who crosses uh, through the river uh, is on American soil, well, they've already crossed the border. Uh, and so, in fact... Um, the border fence in keeping them out of the United States. And, and what, what we saw was that there were gates in the fence that were left open so that people who had already crossed onto United States territory could, of course, uh, walk over to the gates and turn themselves into immigration. Hmm. So it really is not the case that people are, uh, at least at that border crossing, it's not the case that people are coming across illegally to evade U.S. officials. Uh, in many cases, they're coming across, you know, at irregular points of crossing and turning themselves into U.S. officials because uh, current U.S. policy is to either sort of meter them uh, at the official uh, crossing at the bridge. In other words, they're turning people back if they if they, you know, have the, uh, the hunch that they might be uh, refugees or asylum seekers hmm. and they're telling them to come back, uh, you know, when they have more time. Uh, or space for processing and, and, and also what they're rolling out, out across the southern borders is the remain in Mexico policy where they're actually turning people back and telling them to wait uh, you know uh, in Mexico until they get a chance to uh, do their their asylum uh, hearing in many cases via televideo Oh wow. And- so the, um, uh, and that becomes even more apparent when uh, we came to the part of the border where there was a dam. Uh, uh damming the river, and then at that point, the border actually transitions to a land border, huh. Uh and that land border didn't have a border fence right there, so it was, it was quite easy to, uh th- there was sort of a, a ditch at one point uh, with some markers and then, uh, you know, went up into the mountains, and the mountains were not very high at that point. Uh, it would have been quite easy for people to have walked across at that port, port of the border, completely unimpeded, Certainly not un, undetected, though, because there are ground sensors and there are cameras, and uh, I'm sure that people who crossed at that point would be quickly met by border patrol trucks. Because it's a large urban area and just people all over watching. Hmm. Um, but again, uh, we didn't we didn't we didn't see people crossing there. We saw them uh, we saw them crossing, uh, you know, closer to the river, and then sort of turning themselves into uh, immigration officials on the U.S. side.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure some of that, uh, you know, that we've heard about is true, that there are very long waits, um, whether you get accepted to stay in a detention center or whether you're passed off to stay in Mexico, it's uh, quite a long wait to have your hearing.
1: Correct. And, um, you know, as much as uh, the the kind host that was showing me around, uh, you know, was pointing out some of the uh, different areas of town, Uh, some of which, you know, look quite safe and quite lively, but she pointed out to me that, you know, a lot of these areas are quite insecure, uh, and are controlled by various, uh, criminal elements, criminal gangs. And especially for the migrants that are not from Mexico, there, there, there are places where they're quite, uh, their security would be compromised, where they'd be in, in, in danger of getting, uh, kidnapped, um, um you know, extorted, uh, money extorted from them. Uh, so the wait in Mexico is not a secure weight by any means.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. I, I hadn't thought about that. Um, so the the people that are coming who are fleeing some really difficult situations, oftentimes with their children, are kind of forced to wait in unsecure uh, areas. And, and for that matter, probably some of the uh, detention centers in the U.S. are not that great, but are better, I'm sure.
1: They, they might be safer, although, you know, they're still jails and um, the conditions that some of the migrants have been describing and, and, and conditions that have been documented by organizations that have, uh, you know, uh, gone and evaluated these uh, centers are quite, quite disturbing,
2: uh-huh.
1: um, as, as people have heard about in, in the news. Anyway, so I was telling you about uh, an organization or a loose uh, grouping of former
2: uh, Department of Justice employees. Uh, immigration judges and members of the Board of Immigration Appeals who put out uh, uh, a piece uh, criticizing the, uh, the, the supposed fact sheet that the Department of Justice had put out uh, and and taking issue with the suggestion that most people don't show up if, if, uh, if they're released. Uh, so I'd be happy to send that to you and if you'd want you could put it up for your listeners to, to take a look at themselves.
0: Definitely. Thanks Alex. And Alex in response to that kind of uh shifting gears a little bit I know that um uh your faith and uh you know kind of the Catholic social justice and social teachings are a big part of your response to that and kind of what the students might have experienced on the at the Ignatian uh, Encuentro so what um could you tell us a little bit more about that and kind of what you know how that played into um your work
2: Sure Well, uh, you know, as we've just talked about, it's heavy work, Uh, and in particular, when my students are working on these kind of cases, when they're encountering detained migrants or people who've been recently detained or people who've just fled uh, from life-threatening conditions, uh, you know, I like to introduce them to a spiritual element of the work we're doing uh, to kind of contextualize, give them some some nourishment. Uh, I start all of my classes with a prayer a reflection, a song, some sort of meditation uh, that either I will, uh, you know, find uh, from a Catholic or Christian tradition or or Muslim tradition or any other faith tradition or um, sometimes even uh, sort of secular reflections, poems, songs. And I invite my students, uh, if they so wish, to contribute uh, at the start of the class with, with something of their own. Um, and and you know we uh we invite in uh, speakers that uh, address that dimension of our work as well we have a a Jesuit priest that uh, comes in and speaks about the uh the Jesuit and Mercy charisms or spiritual gifts of the two orders that um, are involved uh, in the spiritual life of our law school so we have uh St Ignatius of Loyola the founder of the Jesuits um you know, came to his deeper conversion after being wounded as a soldier uh, in in the uh, in in Spain, um, and he uh, was the founder of an order uh, and a spirituality that focused on finding God in sort of the everyday life uh, of the world. At a time when when many people were seeking spiritual life, kind of hidden away in monasteries or in the desert, that sort of experience, he was trying to find it in everyday life, uh, working with the poor, working with the disadvantaged. Uh, and that's very much at the core of, of what we do uh, in the Immigration Law Clinic. Similarly, uh, the Sisters of Mercy, founded by a woman named Catherine McCauley in, in Ireland, um, focused on, on helping uh, inner city women and children, um, orphans, uh, widows, uh, and helping them uh, with their um, physical, uh, economic and spiritual needs. Um, and and that's very much at the heart of what we do as well in the clinic. Uh, You know, the majority of our clients uh, are women and children, uh, immigrants. So, uh, so I think that that component of spirituality is very nourishing for the work we do helps to contextualize it. And, and in an era when we're, we spend a lot of time kind of focusing on the technical aspects of becoming a lawyer, uh, becoming an advocate i think that's a very important uh, important component to bring in.
0: Hmm. I'm glad I'm glad you brought up briefly that that interfaith um aspect um to the work that you do and i i think we mentioned this a little bit earlier and or touched on it a little bit earlier in our talk but um that's really present in the detroit and windsor area for for many reasons but among those um a lot of people don't know it has one of the, the largest uh arab uh communities in the United States, so can you tell us a little bit more about that? Kind of, you know, through running or coaching, um, what what you've encountered and what you know about the community there.
2: Absolutely, it's a very rich and vibrant community. Uh, that um, a large Arab community, a large Muslim community. Some of those are non-Arab Muslims. Uh, and, you know, sometimes people from the outside outside of this area might not realize that there's a difference between Arabs and chaldeans and assyrians and copts and persians uh that all sort of come vaguely from uh the same part of the world but have uh various cultural and religious traditions um and and, you know uh, i think uh, on both sides of the border in in windsor and and in the detroit area these communities have uh learned to live together as they've lived together in in their home countries uh and there's a great deal of harmony and and uh cultural uh flourishing so That's fantastic. You know, yeah.
0: Um how how do you, how would you um kind of uh, characterize uh, I know that you're involved with a lot of community stuff. You have five children and they're involved in a lot of stuff. Um how how would you characterize, you know, relationship, I know, you know, through sports, through running, uh, ice hockey, which is both of both of one of our favorites uh, that we share too. Um would you say that there's a lot of community involvement between the different cultural groups in in Windsor and Detroit?
2: Absolutely. I'll tell you about a a hockey program that I've been involved in uh in Detroit called the Clark Park uh uh hockey program. Uh it's at a it's at the only outdoor rink that's left in Detroit uh and it's right in a neighborhood that has a large immigrant population largely uh Uh, Latin American, Central American, Mexican immigrants, many of whom are are not sort of culturally uh, disposed towards hockey. And so we've got first-generation hockey players out there on the ice uh, alongside, um, you know, African-American kids, uh, you know, which are uh, populations that are sort of uh, underrepresented uh, in the NHL and and in other um, big leagues. So that's been a really fun experience. Um, encountering some of the parents of my clients uh, on the ice. Um, so that's that's on the Detroit side. On the Windsor side, you know, I'm involved in the Windsor Soccer Club, uh, and I'm always gratified to, to meet parents and, and children uh, at the soccer field that have come recently from uh, other countries. There's been a large influx of Syrian refugees to the Windsor area, um, and Afghans uh, and, and others from, from that part of the world that's been so touched recently by war. And um, you see the parents making the effort to speak English, to reach out, to participate, uh, and it's it's part of the cultural mosaic of our, our area. Um,
0: that's fantastic. I, I You know, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize who are maybe from even a little bit further south um, is that, you know, good four months of the year five months of the year you have ice and it's really cold so it can be hard to be motivated to get out to run or find a place to run and play soccer that's safe so um you know that's where ice hockey could come in uh you know really good for inner city uh sports for for youth
2: absolutely
0: cool well alex i i really appreciate you answering those and uh next I, uh so I've got to shift gears before we finish the interview and ask Absolutely. you about your your next running venture. I know from personal sources that uh actually you've uh committed to the the Crim 10 Miler and getting ready for that in uh, Flint, Michigan.
2: Right, uh, and that's to join my good friend Mark Holbert, uh <laughs> not to uh you know, not to burden him with running beside him or anything. I keep up and keep in it as long as I can. So uh, what I'm trying to do is do what I should have done 20 years ago and get real serious about water running. Ah. Uh, And that's been my my goal is to – I got myself a great uh, waterproof uh, podcast player to cut the boredom down, but we've got some great pools close by here. And then when the water warms up, I'll be running in the Detroit River. And I found that it's a great way to get a workout in uh, with a little less stress on the uh, the joints.
1: Oh, that's <laughs> so, awesome, Alex. Um, yeah, look out! I'll be
2: I'll be tearing it up from the uh, the crim race.
0: The, those uh, those aqua joggers and uh, and all the different types of aqua running are, are great. My I don't know if I ever told you, my wife after foot surgery spent about almost a year using the aqua jogger and getting being able to keep fit that way until she was able to start. Oh, good little by little got back into it and now she's back doing the the disney marathons and all that crazy stuff so
1: (laughs) yeah and she's an
2: impressive runner i i uh i'm always amazed at the uh distances and times that she's putting out so anyway my goal is to kind of try and just keep up a little bit
0: Thanks, Alex. Well, I, good, best of luck, and I, I can't wait to, to see you in Michigan with uh, with all the all the other runners in Flint, and uh, maybe before that, but uh, thank you so much for your time and being on the podcast.
2: You're welcome, and I'm I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, your upcoming podcast. This is a great initiative, and I look forward to all the, the folks you'll be bringing on the show.
0: Thanks, Alex, and happy running. You too. All right, take care. Take care. care. And thanks to all of you for joining us. Please join us also on social media. Like our Facebook page, go to the Internet site, link up with any topics that you find interesting. And we hope and wish you happy running in all your future endeavors.